All right, well, let me invite you to grab your Bibles and take them out and turn open to Judges chapter 2. We're going to continue our study that we kick-started last week as we journey through the Old Testament book of Judges. If you do not have a Bible, know that we have some on the table in the back. Feel free to grab one of those and use over the course of these next few moments. If you do not own a Bible, take that home with you. Let it be our gift to you. Find your way to Judges chapter 2, and we'll just pick right back up where we left off, off last week. You see, last week we dealt with the first half of what's called the prologue or the introduction to the book of Judges. And it's a rather lengthy prologue. It's a long introduction. And the first half of which we looked at last week provides us with a historical summary of all that will transpire in the book of Judges. Just a historical summary of everything that will occur in the book. But when you step into the second half of the prologue and the passage that we're going to be looking at today, we're not so much reading a historical summary with a lot of details with a lot of names and with a lot of places. Instead, we're reading more of a theological assessment of everything that's going to happen in the book of Judges. And that's important for us to consider because this is a theological assessment, which means this passage is bringing us into the deepest meaning of the book of Judges. You see, Judges is a book, the deepest meaning of which is the same as the deepest meaning of your life. The deepest meaning of your life as a human being created in the image of God who've been given time and space to occupy in this world, the deepest meaning of your life is theological. It is how you envision who God is and what you think about what God is like and how your thoughts of God give shape to your daily wanderings through this world. The deepest meanings of life are always theological. This is why A.W. Tozer would tell us that what comes into a person's mind when we think about God is the single most important thing about us. This is why James Boyce would warn us that no people ever rise above their idea of God. A loss of the sense of God's high and awesome character always involves a loss of people's moral values and even what we commonly call humanity. In other words, when we lose God, we lose ourselves. When we have no thought of God, we have no reliable thought of who we are to be as we journey through this world. The deepest meaning in life is always theological. It concerns what we think about God and how we're responding to who God is. And this is essentially what this passage will put before us. So the first half of the prologue, it gives us Israel's perspective on their situation, a historical summary. The second half of the prologue gives us God's perspective. It gives us a, his theological assessment of their situation. And so you hold that in your mind because essentially you're getting a couple of perspectives, right? which might encourage some of you because you live in a culture that loves multiple perspectives. In fact, our schools ingrain within us the, the need and the desire to learn how to see things from different perspectives, learn how to put ourselves in other people's shoes and see things from different angles. That's just, that's just the world that we live in. I think that it's one of the reasons why um, there's so much angst and animosity surrounding Colin Kaepernick's decision to kneel during the national anthem. I think one of the reasons why there's so much angst and animosity regarding that is because everybody's talking past each other and nobody's listening to each other. You see, when it comes to learning how to see things from, other, from another perspective, it has less to do with your eyes and has everything to do with your ears. And if you want to see things from a new perspective, you have to use your ears. You have to listen. 
And nowhere in life is this more important than when we approach the scriptures, when we approach God's written word. Because the Bible as a whole gives us God's perspective. It is God's real. It is God's assessment of what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. And so if we want to really embrace a perspective as we journey through this world, then it would, it would serve us well to turn our attention to the scriptures and to listen well and to listen to God's perspective that is revealed to us through, throughout the scriptures. And so let's just consider a little bit about God's perspective, picking up in verse 6. Our passage tonight reads, Previously, when Joshua had sent the people away, the Israelites had gone to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. If you remember from last week, at this point, Israel is without a unifying leader. They are organized into 12 tribes, and each of these 12 tribes have been awarded or given a certain section of the promised land, and it is up to them to now go into the spaces that God is giving them and to take possession of it. And so this is what's happening there when they spread out throughout the land to receive their inheritance. Verse 7, the people of that generation worshiped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime. And during the lifetimes of the elders who outlived Joshua, they had seen all the Lord's great works he had done for Israel. Then in verse 8, it says, Joshua, son of Nun, who was the leader just before all of this would happen, he's referred to as the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. That whole generation was also gathered to their ancestors. After them, another generation, and here's the kicker, another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works he had done for Israel. Let's keep on reading the passage. The Israelites, verse 11, did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They worshiped the Baals and abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them up out of Egypt. They followed other gods from the surrounding peoples and bowed down to them. They angered the Lord, for they abandoned him and worshipped Baal and Ashtoreth. The Lord's anger then burned against Israel, and he handed them over to marauders who raided them. He sold them to the enemies around them, and they could no longer resist their enemies. Whenever the Israelites went out, the Lord was against them and brought disaster on them. Just as he had promised and sworn to them, so they suffered greatly." The Lord raised up judges who saved them from the power of their marauders, but they did not listen to their judges. Instead, they prostituted themselves with other gods, bowing down to them. They quickly turned away from the way of their fathers who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. They did not do as their fathers did. And whenever the Lord raised up a judge for the Israelites, the Lord was with him and saved the people from the power of their enemies while the judge was still alive. The Lord was moved to pity whenever they groaned because of those who were oppressing and afflicting them. And whenever the judge died, the Israelites would act even more corruptly than their fathers, following other gods to serve them and bow and worship to them. They did not turn from their evil practices or their obstinate ways, and then things just get worse in verse 20. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he declared, Because this nation has violated my covenant that I made with their fathers and disobeyed me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I did this to test Israel and to see whether or not they would keep the Lord's ways by walking in them as their fathers had. The Lord left these nations and did not drive them out immediately. He did not hand them over to Joshua Chapter 3, verse 1, these are the nations the Lord left in order to test all those in Israel who had experienced none of the wars in Canaan. 
This was to teach the future generations of the Israelites how to fight in battle, especially those who had not fought before. These nations included the five rulers of the Philistines and all of the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites, who lived in the Lebanese mountains from Mount Baal Hermon as far as the entrance to Hamath. The Lord left them to test Israel to determine if they would keep knights, heathites, he had given their fathers through Moses. But they settled among the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And the Israelites took their daughters as wives for themselves, gave their own daughters to their sons, and worshipped their gods. That's a mouthful. But essentially what you get after as you're reading this, this theological assessment of all that will transpire in the book of Judges, we are cued into a, an incredibly important reality, and that incredible important reality concerns God's desire, in fact, God's demand for every generation of his people that ever come upon the scene in this world, he demands an exclusive relationship with them. And when you think about who God is, and we think about who God is for Israel, that's a reasonable explanation. I mean, a reasonable expectation. It is reasonable for God to expect an exclusive relationship with his people. I mean, he's done so much for them. He's been everything to them. And he's, in fact, carved out a covenant with the nation of Israel. He's entered into a relational agreement with them. Now, you consider this whole idea of covenant. The closest analogy we have to this type of commitment in our culture is the covenant of marriage. When a bride and a groom enter into a marital relationship that is carved out through a covenant commitment. And usually if you've ever attended a wedding ceremony, you know that there's a moment where a bride and a groom, they usually stand before uh, an efficient and a congregation of eyewitnesses. And in that moment, what are they doing? They are agreeing to a new covenant. They are agreeing to a new kind of relationship. And usually in that moment, there's the exchanging of vows where where they look at each other and they make some promises to each other. I'll share with you some vows that I often use in weddings that I'm privileged to officiate. They, they usually look at each other and, and they say things like this. I take you to be my wife. By God's grace, I promise to love and to serve you all the days of my life. For God's glory, I promise to seek my joy in your joy. With God's help, I promise to care for you for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer in sickness and in health, in joys and in sorrows, until death alone separates us. I make this pledge or this promise to you on this day in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And these vows are exchanged and these vows are to characterize the covenantal relationship that the bride and the groom are forming in that moment. And it is a reasonable explanation, expectation a reasonable expectation that that relationship from that point forward would be an exclusive relationship. A reasonable expectation that neither one of them would take any more lovers for the rest of their life. That for the rest of their days in this world, they are going to be completely devoted and loving one another exclusively. So it's a reasonable expectation to say that God demands an exclusive relationship with every generation of his people that ever entered this world, as, as numerous as they are for as long as they are, it is a reasonable expectation for God to expect an exclusive, unique relationship with his people. In fact, if you read the book just before the book of Judges, you get into the book of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 24, it's interesting, there's a kind of 
marriage ceremony, if you will, where God is kind of the groom and Israel is the bride and they exchange vows, they make promises and commitments to one another. Joshua chapter 24, let me just share with you a portion of the vows that were exchanged, the first set of which come from God to the people of Israel through Joshua, the leader. And this is what he says, Therefore, fear the Lord and worship him in sincerity and truth. Get rid of the gods your fathers worshiped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and worship the Lord. But, but if it does not please you to worship the Lord, choose for yourselves today which you will worship, the gods of your father, the gods your fathers worshiped beyond the Euphrates River or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. As for me and my family, this is Joshua speaking, we will worship the Lord. And then it says the people replied, and they kind of give their vows. Listen to what they say. We will certainly abandon the Lord to worship other gods. For the Lord our God brought us and our fathers out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery, and performed these great signs before our eyes. He also protected us all along the way we went and among all the peoples whose lands we traveled through. The Lord drove out before us all the peoples, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We, too, will worship the Lord because he is our God. So those are the vows being exchanged. Essentially, God saying, I'm going to be committed to you. And Israel responding, we are going to be committed to you. You are our God. We will worship you exclusively. And that first generation of Israelites, they did that fairly well. They remained relatively faithful to that commitment. They were a faithful spouse for a season. But we learned something striking at the beginning of, or in verse 10 of chapter 2, that there was a new generation that rose up. And this new generation wasn't quite as faithful. This new generation wasn't quite as committed to the Lord. They weren't carrying out a faithful commitment to God And it says why in verse 10, after them another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works he had done for Israel. Now understand that when it says that this new generation did not know the Lord, this does not mean they were ignorant. It does not mean they were uneducated. You see, part of the commitment that the people of Israel made when they made their vows in Joshua chapter 24, that included the commitment to say, I'm going to tell my kids about what God did for us in Egypt and what God did for us as we journeyed through the wilderness wanderings. I think if you would have taken this generation and if you would have put them in a classroom and given them a test saying, look, here you have an essay. I want you to describe to me what went down in Egypt. I want you to describe to me what went down in the wilderness. I believe this generation would have been able to ace that test. The problem with them not knowing the Lord wasn't education. They weren't ignorant people. They weren't ignorant to all that God had done throughout the history of their parents and grandparents What they were lacking is what's called an experiential knowledge of God, an experiential knowledge of the Lord. That's what the language of knowing the Lord is all about. You see, God desires an exclusive relationship to be shared with him by every generation of his people, and that relationship is to be characterized not simply with you and I knowing about our God. It is to be characterized with the fact that we know God that we have an experiential knowledge of God, that we've received his grace and his goodness in our lives in ways that is making a practical impact on our hearts and changing our lives. The problem wasn't education. The problem was experience. Now, we don't know exactly what went down and 
the relaying of the things of God or the knowledge of God from the previous generation to this new generation. We don't know what broke down in the transmission, but there are a few things that I would encourage you to consider as you, as you represent a new generation who's to have an exclusive relationship with God in the world right now as you are representatives of that reality. I do want to encourage you to consider a few things. One, you have a responsibility to the generation coming up after you. You have a responsibility to educate them, yes, about the things of God, but more than that, you have a responsibility to lead them into the experience of God. All of us, as the body of Christ, have a responsibility to the up-and-coming generation. Now, if you are a mom or dad, this responsibility falls heavily upon your shoulders. In fact, I would say that as a mom and a dad, your primary responsibility in the lives of your kid isn't to get them ready to play sports, and it isn't getting them ready to make the best grades they can in school. It isn't to make sure that they learn multiple languages. That's not your primary responsibility as a mom or a dad. Your primary responsibility and calling is to lead your kids into the experience of God so that their hearts would warm up to God, that they would come to trust God and and leading them in that direction. That is your primary responsibility. So this whole dynamic starts in the home. But if you're a mom or a dad and you're thinking, that's too much I can, for me to carry, I don't know if I can do that, don't sweat it. Though it starts in the home, that ministry, that activity is to be supported in the church. And you are not on your own when it comes to relaying the truths of God and leading your kids into the knowledge of God. You have a faith family that wants to rally around you and support you and encourage you in that process. And this faith family consists of, yes, other parents, other moms and dads, but this faith family also consists of single persons and married people who do not have kids. It is a diverse family that we can lean into together to find support and encouragement as we try to shepherd the next generation, as we try to lead them into the knowledge of God so that they wouldn't just know a lot of things about God, although that is needed, that they would find themselves trusting God for themselves, being moved by the reality of God in their lives. And so that brings me to another dynamic that I just want to identify with this. I want to say, yeah, it starts in the home. Moms and dads, this is your primary responsibility. But it is to be supported by the church. We rally around one another to help the next generation press into these realities. But then the last thing I would mention is that this requires both education and experience. It's both education and experience, meaning there are things we are to teach our kids about who God is. There are things that we are to teach our kids about the gospel and about the Bible. There are things we are to educate our kids on, and we do that in our kids' ministry week in and week out. We do that through other avenues over the course of our time together, but but it's not just education. It's also experience, and what that means is as we are This means that I want to challenge all of us to see how can we bring the next generation along with us as we're seeking to serve the Lord in this church and in this city so that they can actually see adults who love Jesus living out their faith so they can actually see the dots being connected in adults' lives who say, yes, I believe these things about Jesus. That's why I'm deciding to do this. Let me challenge you, mom and dad, if I were to ask your kids what's most important to them, how would they answer that question? They'd be able to say 
that you treasure Jesus? Would they be able to say that you treasure the things of God? Would they be able to say that you treasure the life of faith? Do they see you making decisions on a daily basis in light of who God is and what God is about? One of the things I love most about Sunday afternoons when we gather together in this space is seeing kids joining their parents and other adults in the process of setting up this space for our time together and seeing little ones joining parents and adults, helping us tear down after this, getting involved in what we're doing and helping us carve out some space to gather like this and to do the things that we're doing, that, that has an impact on their hearts. It's reinforcing and watering the seeds of the gospel that have been sown in them by our kids' ministry and other people who are speaking the gospel into their lives. And I would go another step further, just to look at it this way. What, what type of impact do you think it would have on your kids if they ever heard, overheard a conversation you had with someone and you were actually telling them about Jesus? And they heard you share the gospel with someone who doesn't yet believe the gospel or know the gospel, what kind of impact do you think that would have on their little hearts and the formation of their relationship with God if they were overhearing you live out your faith on a day-to-day -day basis? Now, again, I don't want to assume that I know the reason why there was a breakdown. It, it seems that the breakdown would fall he more heavily upon the, the generation that was up and coming and the fact that they just didn't receive the things of God from their, from their parents. But in any case, they find themselves in a tough situation. And you pick up verse 11, and here we begin to see a little something about God's perspective. Because it says that this generation did what was evil in the Lord's sight. Now, evil's a hard word. You hear that word evil, and you know Halloween's coming up, and you know that's probably where your mind goes. And you think about horror films and other graphic imagery that you would consider to be evil. But according to God's perspective, there's something you might not, there's something he calls evil that you might be familiar with or aware of. You see, there's a, there's a definite article in verse 11 that qualifies the word evil so that that verse could actually read the Israelites did what was the evil in the Lord's sight. And as you read through the rest of the passage, you begin to understand, okay, what is the evil? Well, the evil is what the Bible calls idolatry. That the evil isn't so much rejecting God completely. The evil is bringing other lovers into your bed. The evil is not worshiping your God exclusively. The evil is not worshiping your God wholeheartedly. The evil is bringing other gods into your life, other gods into your spirituality, other gods into your heart. This is what the Bible refers to as idolatry, and this is what God considers to be the evil. It's what's in his sight. And it makes sense when you consider Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, when God is giving his people the Ten Commandments, and the very first commandment is what? You consider how the God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. That's commandment number one. You miss that, you're going to miss everything else. You get that, you're going to get everything else, right? So the evil would be disobeying that one command of having other gods besides the Lord. Now, for the nation of Israel, those gods took a couple of names. They, they worshiped the Baals, according to this passage, and they worshiped something called Ashtoreths. Now, this is where the book of Judges begins to get a little sticky. I warned you about this last week, and the book does get a little sticky. This is one of those points. You see, for the Canaanites and their worldview, how they were thinking about gods and how they were thinking about what made life meaningful, in their mind, uh, Baal was the god of rains and fertility. 
That was his job in the universe. And he had a female counterpart, Ashtoreth, and and according to Canaanite theology, the fertility of the land, that is vegetation and produce provision, it all depended upon the sexual relationship between Baal and his female consort. However, their, their copulation, I'll use that word, uh, when, when they would hook up, uh, they, they didn't just hook up. They weren't just attracted to one another. Instead, they, them hooking up so that vegetation would, be, would sprout forth in the world, it had to be coerced. And so in Canaanite theology and religion, what was happening is they'd set up these temples all throughout the ancient world, and at the temples they would employ sacred prostitutes. And these were women who would live at the temple, and they would devote their lives to, to Baal and Ashtoreth. And, and then male Canaanite worshipers would come to the temple, and they would bed the sacred prostitutes in an effort to encourage Baal and Ashtoreth to do the same. And so what you have in this idolatry that Israel was being swept up into is this twisted idea that God needs to be coerced. That God only responds and only provides and only does good things for his people if he's coerced into doing so. And this is where we begin to reach the biggest difference between Christian faith, biblical faith, a worldview that is centered on the scriptures and every other religion, every other spirituality that exists in the world. This is where you begin to see the difference. Because every other religion, there's some, on some level, God or gods need to be coerced into providing for people, need to be coerced into saving people, need to be coerced into redeeming people. But the God of Israel, the God of the Bible doesn't. This is why in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus would make this statement when he's talking about prayer. He said, when you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. He's saying, look, don't pray like other religions and other faiths where you see them just throwing all kinds of words in God's direction, begging him to do things. He's saying, look, you don't have to be like them because your father knows the things you need before you ask him. Your father is a good father, and he wants to take care of you. You don't have to coerce him through religious activity. You don't have to coerce him through religious routine. You don't have to coerce him by praying the right things. You don't have to coerce him. You just have to trust him. See, if any of you are in this moment relating to God in a formulaic way or a mechanical way or a religious way, if you are relating to God according to either of those dynamics, your relationship to God is characterized more by paganism than Bible. It's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible who sent his son Jesus to sweep us up into his family is a father to us. And he doesn't have to be coerced by his children. We don't have to do wild religious activities to get God to be kind to us. That's not the heart of God. I'm a father of three kids, and every dad in this room would know this to be true. You don't have, your kids don't have to coerce you to provide for them. Your kids don't have to coerce you to love them and to treat them well. You do because it brings you pleasure. You do because that's who you are as a father. Well, when it comes to our heavenly father who loves us like children, we don't have to coerce him. We just have to trust him. That's the beauty of biblical faith. That's the beauty of gospel belief. But the people of Israel, they weren't there. 
And so they began to move around. You look at verse 17, it says they started prostituting themselves with other gods. When it says that, it literally means that. That's what the people of Israel were doing. They were going to the Canaanite temples and they were lying with sacred prostitutes. They were prostituting themselves with other gods. You see, idolatry is the fountainhead of all immorality in the world. All of our sin, all of our immorality can always be traced to a breakdown in our worship, a breakdown in our trust, a breakdown in our faith. We always worship our way into sin. If you feel yourself stuck in the midst of your sin right now, you worshiped your way there. But the good news of the gospel is that as you have worshiped your way into your sin, it is possible for you to worship your way out of it. And you're going to see at the end of this passage how you can worship your way out of sin and you can find yourself, ask you, of course, enjoying God exclusively once again. So let me ask you, of course, you hear this language, idolatry, idols, and you're probably thinking, well, this is so irrelevant. There's no bells and asherahs lying around my room or in my home or whatever the case may be. Uh, please let me encourage you not to think so simplistically about idolatry. Idolatry has nothing to do with statues. It has everything to do with the posture of your heart. And it arises in our lives every time we look to anything that God created and we elevate those aspects of God's creation and we put beside God. So that we worship God, but we're also worshiping these things too. And there's really no discernible difference between the two. So we take these good things that God has given us and created for our enjoyment. And we elevate them to placing them besides God. And when we do that, that is idolatry. That's when our hearts begin to slide in a direction that God doesn't want our hearts to slide into. That's when we betray the exclusive devotion that we are to be giving. The exclusive trust, the exclusive allegiance to our God, and we can do this with anything in creation. Most notably, we do these with good things. We do these things with our talents, our skills, with our families, with our abilities, all types of things that God blesses us with. We have a tendency to elevate and to put beside God, and it's a very dangerous thing to do. It's dangerous when you consider verse 18. There are some vivid words used there saying that these idols that the Israelites were worshiping, they did two things. They oppressed them and afflicted them. These idols begin to choke life out of the people of Israel. And every time we find ourselves putting our faith and trust in anything other than God for our security, for our satisfaction, for our safety, for our enjoyment, anytime we do that, we're going to find that idol slowly, subtly choking life out of us. I, I'm reminded of my son Asher. A couple of weeks ago, I took him camping out on a farm. And it was a big farm where there's lots of wildlife and various things running around. But Asher was most attracted to these little green frogs that were hopping all over the field. And the funnest thing he enjoyed for two days was going and capturing these little green frogs. Now, my son is four, and he's kind of a big, year, big four-year-old. He has relatively big hands. And when he first started catching these frogs, he didn't realize how hard he was squeezing them. And uh, I'm studying judges, so I can do this. So he's squeezing these frogs, and before I realize it, I'm like, oh, no, what's he doing? So I kind of grab his hand, and I pry them open, only to find a, a dead frog lying in his grip. And I didn't want him to notice. He, he was kind of oblivious. I just kind of chunked the frog away and told him to go find another one, and let's hold it a little softer and a little lighter. And all the while, before I realized it, before he realized that life was taken from this frog, will you realize you realize that this is how the Bible describes idolatry's effect on the human soul. 
that the more we elevate things to the position of God over time, it begins to squeeze life out of us. It begins to choke life out of us. At times, we're going to find, or before we realize it, we're going to find our spiritual lives being sabotaged by the idolatry and the idols that we have set up in our hearts, those things in creation that we have put next to God, and we're discovering that they're not serving us as well as we are trying to serve them, and it just wreaks havoc on our lives. This is what Israel is experiencing and things don't go well for Israel all throughout the, the book because of this. Now, coming back to this thought that this dynamic, that God desires an exclusive relationship with every generation of his people in the world. And he understands how idolatry can kill people. And so this, this may helps us make sense of God's passion in this book. That he has some passionate responses to the people's idolatry in this passage alone. You look at verse 14 and it says the Lord's anger burned against Israel. It says the same thing in verse 20. The Lord's anger burned against them. What are you to do with that? Does it surprise you to think about God getting angry? Does it frighten you to think God's getting angry in this moment? This may surprise you, but it shouldn't. This may feel like a contradiction to God's loving nature, but it's not. I would remind you that the opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is apathy. And so if God had no passion in response to the people's idolatry, if no anger swelled up within him, we could question whether or not he really loved his people. The opposite of love isn't anger, it is apathy. And he gets angry because, yes, on one hand, he loves his people. And he gets angry because, on the other hand, he's a just God who hates injustice. And all of Israel's idolatry is hurting them. And it's going to hurt the nations that is to see them exclusively devoted to the Lord and be drawn into that light. So God is getting angry in this moment because that is a reflection of his love and his justice. His love and his concern for people's welfare all over the world. So it makes sense that God gets angry. But you got to understand that God's anger isn't like ours. His anger isn't like yours when you stub your toe in the middle of the night trying to get a drink from the fridge. His, angry, his anger isn't like yours when you get frustrated with your kids because you are a sinner and you are not perfect and your emotions are disordered. Your body doesn't respond the way that God would have you respond in every moment of every day. When you get angry, you throw tantrums. When God gets angry, he does not. God's the only person in the universe whose anger doesn't lead him to throw tantrums. And so his response to the people's idolatry in this passage is a measured response. It's a calculated response. Yes, he disciplines the people of Israel, and he dis disciplines them harshly, but he disciplines them in a calculated measure, doing exactly what he told them he would do if they moved in this direction. You see, God is faithful in both his justice and his grace. He's faithful in both his judgment and his salvation. So you've got to have that in mind if you're going to make sense of this passage. God's anger is present here. But you don't only see anger here. You look at verse 18 and you begin to see something about his compassion, don't you? You have anger on one hand, but you look at verse 18 and you have compassion there. It says, the Lord was moved to pity whenever they groaned because of those who were oppressing and afflicting them. Now, I love this verse because it says that God's heart was moved to pity not in response to anything the people were doing right. In other words, he didn't get compassionate because the people repented. 
It wasn't their repentance that would coerce compassion out of the Lord. No, he's looking upon his people and they're groaning. It's a similar description of what goes down in the book of Exodus in Egypt where the Israelites are groaning under the midst of their oppression and their bondage and their slavery. And it says that God's heart was moved to pity. He responded with compassion or better yet, compassion just swelled up within him as part of his nature. So here, Israelites are groaning, they're suffering, they're struggling, and God's heart moves towards them in a compassionate way. And here's where you begin to find the dilemma and the tension of the book of Judges. And it's the same dilemma and the tension that exists in each and every one of our lives if we're honest with ourselves. And that tension sounds something like this. In his anger, God is against his people. In his anger, he is against his people in the midst of their idolatry and sin. And that means there are things in each and every one of our lives that should make God angry. So on one hand, he's against us as a result of our sin. But on the very next breath, we can say he is for us because of his compassion. So God is against us and he is for us. How are we to make sense of that dynamic Is there any assurance for us in light of that tension and in light of that apparent contradiction? How can God God be for us and against us all at the same time? Well, I would remind you, let me call your attention to verse 1 of of chapter 2. And here's where we begin to see God's problem in this passage. In verse 2 of chapter 2, sorry, verse 1, it says, The angel of the Lord, the messenger of God, said, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land I had promised to your fathers. I also said, here it is, I will never break my covenant with you. Another way of saying that, I will never be against you. I will never abandon you. I will never break covenant with you. But then you drop to chapter 2, verse 20. And it says, the Lord's anger burned against Israel because of their idolatry. And he declared, because this nation has violated my covenant that I made with their fathers and disobeyed me. So on one hand, God says, I'm never going to break my covenant with you. But on the other hand, you keep violating my covenant. You keep abandoning me. You keep worshiping other gods besides me. Your heart is messed up. And so this creates a huge problem, and it's one that you're not going to find resolved in the book of Judges. In fact, you, you kind of find some efforts and some attempts. In verse 16, we're, we're told that the Lord would raise up judges who would save them from the power of their enemies. That God would act on Israel's behalf by raising up men and women to deliver them in various ways. But we're told that their deliverance was only secure as long as their judge lived, as long as their judge was alive. That's the extent of their safety, their security, their rightness with God. So what are we to make of this tension? How are we to resolve this problem? Because that problem isn't going to be solved in the book of Judges because every deliverer, every judge that you're going to read about starting next week, they live and they die. Well, the key word understanding this is that word covenant. It's the word covenant. And what I want to show you is one of the first places where God makes a covenant with the people of Israel. And and it's a moment that is quite fascinating and it's going to help us make sense of this tension. It's found in Genesis chapter 15 where God is hanging out with Abraham. Abraham was a father of faith. He was the one that God came to first and said, look, I'm going to bless you and make your name great. I'm going to give you many descendants And I'm going to be your God, and they're going to be my people. I'm going to give you a land. And he made all these incredible promises to Abraham. And this whole generations, all the generations that we're reading about in Judges are the descendants of Abraham. So the promises God made to him, by extension of promises he made 
to them. And so he comes to Abraham and says, look, we're going to form a covenant. We're going to enter into a marriage. And the way that they would ratify a covenant back in the day was quite gory. It was quite dramatic. It wasn't like signing a marriage license or signing some other contract that was legally binding. Instead, God really wanted to impress the significance upon the conscience of people. So what they did was they, they engaged in a ceremony that was known as the cleaving of the animals. And it was quite gross. Where they would take an animal that was that was prepared for sacrifice. And they would literally cut this sacrifice in half. And they would put half of the carcass on one side of an aisle, half of the carcass on the other side of the aisle. The people who were entering the covenant would exchange some vows, and at some point in time, both parties would walk between the carcasses. And so the imagery there is you have half a carcass, half a carcass, blood spilling out everywhere so that when it was your turn to walk between the carcasses, the blood would splatter up onto you as a way of saying, look, if you break covenant, this is what's going to happen. Breaking covenant is a big deal, a serious, serious offense. And so God set this up with Abraham saying, we're about to form a covenant. We're about to do this. And Everybody reading that story would be expecting both God and Abraham to walk between the carcasses. But just before that goes down, it says God put Abraham to sleep. And he puts Abraham to sleep. And you find in the story that the only person who steps between, the only person who takes responsibility for the covenant is God himself. As he's the only one who would move between the two carcasses. It was God's way of saying, look, I'm going to keep both sides of the covenant I am making with you. So not only will I spill my blood if I fail to keep my part in this deal, I will spill my blood if you fail to keep yours. And this helps us make sense of this tension that in his anger, God is against us in our sin. In his compassion, he is for us in his promises and he is for us in his grace because ultimately as you trace the storyline of the Bible, you get to the moment where the ultimate judge shows up and the ultimate deliverer steps onto the scene and he would go to the cross and shed his blood not because he violated the covenant. He shed his blood because you and I violated the covenant. This is the reality of the gospel. This is God saying, look, I'm going to be utterly responsible for you. I'm going to be utterly responsible for all of my children, so much so that I'm going to take the consequences for your violation upon my son, and he will die in your stead. But the beauty of Jesus' deliverance and Jesus' gospel is that after Jesus was crucified on the cross, eventually what happened three days later, he rose from the grave. And so think about the connection with judges. Every time their earthly judge died, they went south. Every time their earthly judge died, they fell apart as a people. Do you understand that you have a judge who will never die? That your judge is alive. He is risen. He is reigning. Therefore, your relationship with God is entirely secure. Your relationship with God is eternally settled. You can enjoy your God. You can rest in the reality of his grace towards you. And yes, you can take sin seriously in your life, but at the same time, you can extend grace generously because God has taken responsibility for your failures. He has taken responsibility for your idolatry. He has taken responsibility for you, elevating things and placing them beside him. God is saying, look, I've got you covered. I'm gonna take care of this. I'm gonna do something that's gonna change your heart. And this is what the gospel does. 
Jesus lived and he died and he rose again. This is why when you get to Romans chapter 3, verse 26, it tells us that God is both just and justifier of those who would trust in Jesus. He is just because he punishes sin, just like he says he's going to do. But, he just, but he's justifier because he doesn't punish us. He punished himself in Jesus. Therefore, he is just and justifier. He is our deliverer. He is our God. He is the one who deserves our exclusive devotion, our exclusive faith, our exclusive trust. And that's what we want to give him as his people in this generation. And that's what we want to relay to the generation that is coming after us. And we want to see be relayed to the generation coming after them. Exclusive devotion to a God who would love us this this way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to consider these realities? I pray that if our, heart, our hearts are, are cold towards these truths, I pray that your spirit would warm our hearts up. I pray that you would help us to see the beauty of your design, that you are both just and justifier, that you are against us in our sin, but you are for us in Christ. And so would you give us grace to, to see how that can set us free from idolatry, to see how that can set us free from the power of sin and the power of Satan and the power of death. Give us grace to see the fruitful effects of the gospel in our lives and in our church. God, we love you and we pray for this all in Jesus' name. Amen.